Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Disorganizing Nature. All our music for this program comes from the album Looking Ahead by pianist Cecil Taylor, recorded in 1958. Our opening song is Excursion on a Wobbly Rail. Since the 1970s, environmentalists have framed our epoch as the Anthropocene, a period defined by man's, and often specifically men's, unidirectional impact on a quickly heating planet Earth. The so-called Anthropocene continues to be caused by only a small portion of the people on the planet, following hierarchies of race, gender, class, and the artificial division of man and nature. To call it the Anthropocene, however, obscures the underlying dynamics of power that got us to our current planetary crisis. On this week's episode of Interchange, show producer Brady Heberlin joins Jason Moore, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life, in the WFHB studios to untangle the reflexes of the trappings of an anthropocentric view of the planetary crisis and help us locate ourselves in the capital scene. They ask and begin to answer the questions. Who caused the climate crisis? Are we in an Anthropocene, a period defined by the Earth's people, or a Capitalocene? Drawing on environmentalist, feminist, and Marxist thought, Moore offers a groundbreaking new synthesis, capitalism as a world ecology of wealth, power, and nature. Capitalism's greatest strength and the source of its problems is its capacity to create cheap natures, labor, food, energy, and raw materials. That capacity is now in question. Jason W. Moore teaches world history and world ecology at Binghamton University and is coordinator of the World Ecology Research Network. Along with Capitalism in the Web of Life, he's the author of several books and numerous award-winning essays in environmental history, political economy, and social theory. Our show begins by looking at the world ecology perspective and how it might push against and past centuries of artificial separation between humans and nature. The planet doesn't need to be saved, it needs justice. Individual people are not responsible, nor able to solve the climate crisis as consumers. They must challenge the systemic power structures that reduces them to consumers in a global market economy. And now, Disorganizing Nature, with Jason Moore, on Interchange, on WFHP. This is Brady, and I'm here with Jason Moore, uh, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life and also director at the uh, World Ecology Research Network. Um, Jason, just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about those two projects in particular? Well, the World Ecology Conversation is a collaboration, a global collaboration of activists, artists, and scholars from across the disciplines who are committed to the emancipation and liberation of all life. And what that means for us as artists and activists and scholars 
is that we seek to transcend this great cultural divide that is uh, is something we all learn when we grow up, which is that there is a box we're going to call society or civilization or humanity, which is basically human relations of power, economics, culture, but not part of nature. And then there's another box we call nature, where there are the birds and the bees and the forests and the fields. What we're trying to do is to transcend that separation and look for the possibilities of, for example, a climate justice analytics, but also a climate justice politics that puts liberation and justice for all life at the center. And in so doing, find ways to navigate the present planetary crisis, which is a crisis not just of the biosphere, but is a crisis of the climate class divide, of climate patriarchy, of climate apartheid, put all of those together at the center of our politics. So that is neither environmental nor social, but a new vision for how to forge both emancipatory politics, but also ways of knowing and thinking the world as a whole, as an interconnected unity. I think that's really beautiful, and and the work that you um, that you've done uh, in your book Capitalism and the Web of Life, uh, a number of people in town and elsewhere are finding really influential. And one of the concepts that gets at exactly what you're saying about not having this nature society divide um, that you write about is the double internality. Can you say a little bit more about that concept for people who haven't haven't read the book yet? Well, if you're like me, you might go crazy when academics put ITY at the end of words, like globality or governmentality. Uh, Only I couldn't figure out a different way to convey in a very concise way that everything that humans do from making empires to making love to making families to caring for others to uh, farming and cultivating food, everything is connected with webs of life in the most intimate way, both inside, outside, and in between at every turn. And I think that's what we're learning about the climate crisis, that it's not a crisis that's out there. There is a biospheric dimension to it, but it is also a crisis of everyday life, of access to food, of access to work, of access to security, personal security from violence. It is really at the center of questions of justice that go across the multiple domains of social struggles over the past, well, over the past 50 years, but also over the past 500 years of the right to self-determination, to gender equality, to transcending the global color line and a genuine multiracial justice. These are all concerns that are at the heart of a politics of justice around climate change. Because what I say is that the planet does not need to be saved. Planetary life needs justice. I think that's that's a really excellent way of putting that. This is Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is speaking with Jason Moore, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life, about the error of the concept of a carbon footprint, a term of individual responsibility, and why the era of rapacious resource extraction is better termed the capitalocene than the anthropocene. Also in your book, you have a a couple sentences where you're referring to the way that we describe nature as this sort of passive 
passive dirt within which we're like leaving our footprint. So I think of the phrase, the carbon footprint, for example, and it's like, it's like the stamp, stamp we live on where we leave on the earth. Um, but you're posing something else. So you, you have this breakdown, right, of the Anthropocene versus the Capitalocene and kind of pulling nature out of this passive role and then out of even a dichotomy between nature and, and people. Can you say a little bit more? Why, why a Capitalocene? So one of the really enduring popular terms of biggie environmentalism has been footprint analysis and the language of the footprint. So let's start with that and then we'll move to the questions of uh, anthropogenic or, as I like to say, capitalogenic climate change that is not made by humans, but made by capital. And in fact, we know that the top 100 companies in the world have been responsible for about 70% of carbon emissions since the late 1980s. And there's a comparable figure for carbon emissions since uh, the middle of the 19th century. But let's think about this term that all of us use. I've used it, uh, but I stopped using it uh, this term ecological footprint or carbon footprint, and I'll tell you why. One is that footprint as a metaphor suggests the fundamental passivity of nature, of the web of life. You leave your footprint in what? In mud. And, and there's, there's a forgetting of the active and co-constitutive role of webs of life in every sense of that term, including forests and fields, but also the microbiome, also the global climate system that we are always with and within. So I would I would emphasize a much more active and co-productive relation with the rest of nature that we as human bodies, as individual human bodies, are we are ourselves environments for a whole ecology of life. And we in turn uh, uh, make environments as wider environments make us. So we need that dynamic co-productive relation that human organizations from families to financial systems are not only producers of changes in the web of life, but products of them. But there's a more pernicious big E environmental politics that goes along with the language of footprint. Carbon footprint goes back to the idea that major production decisions under capitalism are made by individual consumers. And that forgets something that we all say these days, say about Facebook. The product is you, the consumer of Facebook. But that's not a new phenomenon. That's been going on with a vengeance since the 1940s, and there's a longer history to that as well. The massive volumes of capital, trillions of dollars spent every year in marketing and advertising in every conceivable way to produce you as a consumer. The consumer is a social product. So when we say, well, the solution or a key to the solution is that we need to become more ethical or more virtuous individual consumers, we are not only playing into a very neoliberal idea that the individual isolated consumer votes with her or his dollars and therefore uh, uh, produces consequences of, say, global warming because of too many airplane trips or too many cows being eaten. Now, adjustments in both of those at the level of the whole system need to be made in terms of the meat industrial complex and in terms of air travel. But those planes take off whether you're on them or not. There are These are social production decisions that are made by the 1% and by the vast apparatus of marketing and uh, advertisement. 
What's important to re remember is that this is essentially a creation of biggie environmentalism since the late 1960s. During the 1960s, even liberal economists had completely devastated the idea of consumer sovereignty. So we have to deal very well with this, uh, this tension we all feel between individual connectedness with climate crisis and other forms of socio-ecological devastation, and at the same time realize we are not all equally responsible. We know who is responsible, and this leads to the other part of your great question, which is, do we live in the Anthropocene, the age of man, of humanity, or do we live in the Capitalocene, the age of capital? And a world of difference, a world of political difference turns on your answer. If you believe that humanity is the cause of climate change, humanity as this big H humanity, this block of life that is driving climate change, if you believe that, then the answer is to reduce the numbers of human beings on this planet. And that leads straight into a whole brutal, deadly, and violent neo-Malthusian imaginary that's been around for two centuries but powerfully since 1968. The other possibility is that we live in an era of climate crisis that is created by capital. It is capitalogenic, not anthropogenic. And what that means is that we identify not only the sources of economic power, but also the long histories of domination and uh, environmental transformation that are at the heart of the modern world, which I call a capitalist world ecology. So we need to look at those long histories of the world color line, of globalizing patriarchy and planetary uh, class formation at every turn and how those are intersected in turning webs of life into profit-making opportunities. <music> time for a break. This is Toll, another from Cecil Taylor's Looking Ahead. More on the Capital O scene when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, how the anthropocentric understanding of the climate crisis emphasizes individual choice, limiting action to voting with your dollar and ethical consumption. In short, this amounts to accepting the parameters of capitalism as if it might fix what it has broken. But capitalism only succeeds when it doesn't pay its bills. And so here we are then in the capitalist scene. Um, for people who are listening to this, what are the ways what are the ways that they might be inadvertently considering themselves part of the Anthropocene and not the capitalist scene? Are there everyday things we think through, work through? I think for people who are passionately concerned about something we call sustainability, which is another dangerous term, uh, but for lack of a better one right now, uh, we tend to emphasize individual choices. And that's something I think we can pause and reflect on in two major ways. One I've highlighted is uh, we can reflect on how the idea that individuals vote with their dollars and produce environmental outcomes because of how you, as an individual consumer, uh, uh, purchase food of any kind, uh, engage in uh, buying homes or buying clothes or doing all of the activities of everyday life. So there's a hyper-individualization that goes on. But there's another dimension of this that fits very well with neoliberal capitalism since the early 1970s, and, and big E environmentalism has played a big part in this, which is this problem. A whole series of highly significant and indispensable reproductive activities, the, the unpaid work of everyday life, uh, has been rebranded as consumption. So if you are uh, uh, taking your kids to school because there's no public transportation, if you are uh, uh, engaged in um, buying food, caring for your children, buying clothes for your children in time for the school year, all of these things, which involve a gigantic amount of work, as any parent can tell you. And when I say any parent, I mean overwhelmingly women, though that's maybe changed a tiny bit, not not enough by any stretch of the imagination over the recent uh, uh, decade or so, that a huge amount of women's work has been rebranded as consumption and essentially invisibilized. And so when I talk about the climate crisis as an interlinked crisis, not only of greenhouse gas emissions and biodiversity, but also the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, climate apartheid, I am saying we need to uh, peek behind the veil of mainstream environmentalism and neoliberal ideology, which reduces everything to consumption and therefore not work in that, in that imaginary, and says it's all about ethical consumption. That poses really, I think, fundamental and vexing questions if we pause for a moment and reflect on it. And so that's starting to get at this idea, which you, you also mentioned in, in your book about the differentiation between um, exploitation and appropriation. Uh, and there's that there's that, what you refer to as like this sort of old Marxist joke. The only thing worse than being exploited is being appropriated. Um, and so this unpaid labor, right, is this is this like form of appropriation. It's that something being brought sort of being brought into capitalism. Can you say more about Again, the relationship between capitalism and and nature, you know, nature, capital in nature, uh, and unpaid work, and what what how are these things triangulated as things which are appropriated under capitalism? This is really important. 
when we say capitalism, automatically we think, oh, an economic system. And what I want to say is that the economic system of, of capitalism is indeed central in terms of producing this logic where there is never enough, where capital, that is money that exists only for the sake of expanding, 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 knows no limit. And that's a fundamental part of the story of the past five centuries. It's important to recognize that the, the moments of life that are governed by strict economic transactions are at every point enabled by extraordinarily large uh, uh, volumes of unpaid work, the unpaid work of humans, overwhelmingly women, overwhelmingly people of color and the unpaid work of nature as a whole. So the the classical academic term for working classes in capitalism, the exploited classes, the, the academic term is proletariat. And much of socialist and labor politics for the past two centuries has uh, used this conception of waged working classes. And that's an important part of the story, but the proletariat goes nowhere without the femitaria, the overwhelmingly feminized, unpaid work of, of care and social reproduction in multiple areas of life, but especially in reproducing labor power and in reproducing communities from week to week and generation to generation. And then there is also the bioteria, the unpaid work of capitalism, uh, of life as a whole, that capitalism appropriates, uh, by which I mean essentially does not pay for. It uses culture, it uses violence, it uses states, it uses science to seize upon opportunities for taking the unpaid work of women, nature, and colonies, in the, in the words of Maria Mies, the great German sociologist. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Jason Moore, coordinator of the World Ecology Research Network, is our guest. Show producer Brady Heberlin spoke with Moore in the WFHB studios on November 21st on the capitalist scene and how capitalism succeeds by expropriation and appropriation, or by not paying its bills. So what this means is something very counterintuitive. We think of capitalism as something economic, which is indeed important. But the economics of capitalism depend on every, in every meaningful way on great appropriations, extra economic appropriations of the unpaid work of humans and the rest of nature. So this is a way of understanding that capitalism thrives when it doesn't pay its bills. Today, because of the climate crisis, capitalism is facing a situation where the bills are coming due. One of the things that you're getting at there is that capitalism actually completely like can only exist for having unpaid bills. There, there are these necessary things that it must both like not pay for, can't pay for, uh, but must but must utilize. Can you say a little bit more about that sort of what you call um, or, or what's referred to as like the value in motion of capitalism? Well, at its core, capitalism is about what I call cheap nature. And the dirty secret of cheap nature and in our everyday concept of nature is that that is very much an idea and a practice that comes out of colonialism. 
And it's about redefining most human beings as part of nature with an uppercase N. And this is the this is a very long colonial practice through which racialized regimes, gendered regimes of cheap nature, of producing cheap work for capital accumulation from the uh, uh, households, working class homes and households of early modern Europe, uh, women producing not just the conditions of everyday life, but producing the children who would become wage workers, the proletariat, but also the colonial experience of the plantation. And so there is this dialectic from the very beginning, this close, intimate relationship between the plantation system. And when we say, oh, my uncle works at the plant, that is, we get that from plantation. We should remember that, that there there is a dynamic of the plantation and the mantation that that there are that capitalism is premised on coerced work from the beginning and what that meant for this strange dynamic of economic growth in the modern world which says there there is never enough one can never accumulate enough capital and you see this with the billionaires today. Does anyone really need 130 billion or more dollars like Jeff Bezos has? And it's great to see them freaking out now in the United States. Oh my God, they're going to take our money, as Bernie Sanders said. But this is, this is a dynamic. There is never enough. And that was possible because an unusual crystallization of power and economics and cultural domination came together in Western Europe through the process of invasion and genocide to constantly locate new frontiers of cheap nature. And that cheap, those cheap natures, I, well, I call them the four cheaps. They're cheap food, cheap raw materials, cheap energy, but none of that goes anywhere without cheap labor. And If we look at it in that way, we can see that this endless accumulation orientation and mindset of today's billionaire class comes from an era when the frontiers themselves seemed limitless. Today, not only have all meaningful frontiers been appropriated and devastated, but The atmosphere itself, especially since 1945, has been enclosed as a dumping ground, as a waste frontier for greenhouse gases. Now what we're seeing fundamentally in agriculture is the yield-suppressing effect of climate change on the big four cereal crops of maize and soy and wheat and rice in the world. And, And capitalism is really built on cereal crops because why? Because you can count the grains. And there's something, there's something absolutely pathological about that for those of us who have spent time on farms and gardening. And we see the webs of life that are, are there, that capitalism just reduces it all. So that's, that's really the logic of value, of what capitalism values. And so cheap nature is not just an economic logic of cheapening in price always for the 1%. The 1% don't care if food is expensive at your grocery store at a certain level. They care that it, it's cheap enough to continue a system of endless accumulation, but also to cheapen in an ethical and political sense of that term, to, to treat with less dignity and respect the lives and work of women, nature, colonies, peoples of color. It's time for another break. This is Of What? 
again from Cecil Taylor's 1958 album, Look Ahead. Stay with us for more on ecology and capital accumulation, capitalism in the web of life, on Interchange. Back to Interchange. Brady Heberlin is in conversation with Jason Moore, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life. In this segment, we dig into the hopeful brokenness of the cheap food regime. Cheap for some, but leading to starvation for many, many others. The model of more food for less labor is over. So the point about the about the grains being countable, this reminds me of the passage um, from Against the Grain by James C. Scott, where he's he's saying, you know, grain took off as this sort of uh, plant that that could be taxed under like you know under early sort of statehood. It was accessible and accessible, uh, and that just sort of speaks to the fact that like what what is grown in nature is is formed is co-constitutive, as you said, with what sort of social. Uh, social formations are arising and in motion. So you started to mention food, and I think this is a topic of broad interest. And so cheap food, um, as you're as you're saying, is bundled with cheap labor. Can you explain that sort of bundling? Why why are cheap labor and cheap food so co-constitutive themselves? Well, capitalism is built on a very specific kind of cheap food regime, and and it has several moments of that. One is that cheap food never means cheap food for everyone. It means cheap food for the heartlands of, of working class industrialization. So historically, peasants are allowed to starve. Indigenous peoples are allowed to starve. Uh, famously, at the end of the 19th century, the, the, Christ, uh, the, the confluence of empire, cash crop exporting, and climate produce what Mike Davis calls the late Victorian Holocaust in South Asia and East Asia. 
So cheap food always means cheap food for a very specific layer of the working class. Why is that significant? Well, because ultimately the cost of reproducing working classes and the wage rates that are necessary to allow that in, uh, under normal productive conditions, those wage rates are set by the price of food along with the price of housing. So, and, and the other part of this story is that the classic agricultural revolution story of the modern world, we maybe are familiar with the Green Revolution in South Asia, but that Green Revolution has a very, very long history and begins in the United States with a hybrid corn revolution in the 1930s and is really at the center of American power. Uh, after World War II, it has a long history and its logic is very simple. And it says produce more and more food with less and less average labor time. So average labor time means if you think about all the wage workers working in the capitalist world market and think of the, the average uh, pay for that, then you can put workers, if you can put workers on the land that produce uh, below that average and produce more and more food um, as a result, then there's a, there's a very uh, uh, dynamic relation because two things happen. You reduce the price of food for workers, for wage workers, I should say, not for the rest of the working class, not for the femitariat, not for the bioteriat, but for wage workers, and you expel people from the land. And that's a story we often associate with England in the 16th century. But in fact, that's also the story of colonial conquest and the sugar plantation and racialized labor from the 16th century as well. So there's always a colonial moment and an imperial moment to these agricultural revolutions. Obviously, we are at a crossroads today with food. And I think why we are seeing such exciting food justice, food sovereignty politics around the world, including, as I understand it here in Bloomington and various experiments, is a growing cultural recognition of a basic reality that capitalism's agricultural revolution model of producing more and more food with less and less average labor is now over. And it's over for a whole series of reasons that don't have to do only with climate change, but climate change is coming in in a fairly massive way to amplify and re reinforce the ongoing stagnation and deceleration of yield growth in agriculture. That might sound very technical, but let me connect it to the earlier discussion around capitalism's limitless appetite for wealth. That it's the, the question under capitalism is not can capitalist agriculture feed X number of people in the world? It is, can capitalist agriculture re-establish the conditions for a great new golden age for capital accumulation? And for that, there has to be a revolution, a growth in yields, a growth in labor productivity in agriculture. And both have been slowing down for decades, and GMOs have failed to slow that uh, great reversal of yield growth century after century. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Show producer Brady Heberlin is speaking with Jason Moore, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life, about the broken cheap food system and how the expansion of pesticide and herbicide regimes has failed to increase yields. Can you say a little more about the, the sort of process that we see in the U.S. in terms of the great reversal, you know, speaking to the crisis of the 1970s and the 1980s in agriculture, but then also right now when, you know, in the Midwest, we're seeing fields flood, people are planting late and having really low yields. 
what is that telling us in relationship to what you're saying about this cheap food, cheap labor relationship? Well, it's telling us that that model is now broken. And it's telling us that in the context of an irreversible climate change, that it will not be fixed. Because we know two basic things about climate change. It is suppressing yield and it is suppressing labor productivity. And then it does on a micro on a on a farm to farm level, it does precisely what you just indicated. What does a farmer need to know? When to plant, uh, when to harvest, when are the rains coming, when does the heat come? And all of those are in flux now. There is also, of course, this this other equally significant moment, and I've called it uh, negative value, with, um, for example, in soybeans, the rise of superweeds, that is, weeds that are able to evolve faster than the pesticide regimes to kill them. Uh, and uh, we are now in the midst of an unprecedented wave across the world. I don't know what the situation here in Indiana is, but across the world, a wave of uh, um, herbicide pesticide expansion, uh, a quite remarkable expansion, as I understand it, over the past uh, uh, decade or so. And those that toxic regime, that poison regime is failing to reverse the the tide of a slowdown in yield growth. Yields are still growing, but slower and slower and slower. By 2050, that's not that far away from now, by 2050, the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a sort of club of the richest countries in the world, says that agriculture will absorb two-thirds of the cost of climate change. So the OECD is obviously not a bastion of food sovereignty. And when we think of that estimate of two-thirds of all global costs associated with climate change, we are going to put that alongside the massive devastations of, of uh, cities and urban environments and think about the enormity of what that means, that capitalism is built on a cheap food system. And obviously, cheap food is not cheap for, for many people. And in the United States, one out of seven or one out of six more if you're young, people are hungry. Um, but that cheap food model at the heart, it's the beating heart of whatever you want to call it. But I will, I will call it capitalism because it is a system of endless accumulation and its agricultural heart is, is broken in a good way. We want to break hearts in that way. Yeah, right. It's daunting. It's daunting and hopeful at the same time. Yes. Right? Um, and so – Part of what we were talking about uh, right before we began the show was was all was the sort of possible transitions, you know, the sort of what's next question. And it seems like we could imagine a possibility both where the things that capitalism is built on, it, it changes, you know, it moves, but also that there's some sort of opportunity here. So we have kind of the daunting, the daunting future and the hopeful one are, are right now still like really in, entangled with each other. What do you see as potentials maybe, you know, maybe through food or or otherwise um, in terms of how we might how we might navigate the sort of coming the sort of coming crisis food sovereignty politics since the early mid 1990s has made really a powerful revolutionary argument which is that the right to adequate food and nutrition is intrinsically connected to questions of um, social class gender anti-racist justice is intrinsically connected to questions of agroecological health and, and now to a livable climate. 
And so intrinsically connected means that they, they, they can't be disassembled. So this is a challenge that cannot be met with the old strategies of land reform, of a new productive revolution in agriculture. It cannot be dist- redistributed out of existence. And I think the fact that it that food sovereignty movements broadly conceived emerged at the very moment when the first signs of stagnation and exhaustion of this five-century cheap food, cheap nature model began to present themselves. I think that that's, that's not a coincidence. So we're at a moment which in some ways, as you said perfectly, looks uh, very hopeful and very daunting. We are witnessing the crisis of neoliberal governance. So the end of that Obama, Clinton, Bush kind of global rule in favor of Trumpism, but Trump is not the only one. Bolsonaro in in Brazil, Erdogan in Turkey, Modi in India, many places around the world. There has been, of course, this turn towards ethno-nationalism, blood and soil, policing the border, as I know uh, you you know far more about than I do. Uh, these questions are all uh, uh, that they're dealing with are essentially questions that are dealt with from a very old playbook of uh, more violence and more authoritarianism, uh, a return to very quite naked forms of uh, racist and patriarchal class rule. That is not a recipe for for any kind of of uh, uh, democratic transition within capitalism. That's that uh, reminds me that in the history of twentieth century social revolutions, the revolutions that were negotiated away were revolutions where ruling classes and and opposing movements could come to some kind of positive sum situation. Where they, where they couldn't, where one would win and the other would lose, it was much more uh, radical, it was much more abrupt, it was much more violent. And sad to say, I think that we're headed into a period like that. It's time for our final break. This is Wallering, another from Cecil Taylor. When we come back, frontier technologies and violent domination. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB.
Back to Interchange, our show is Disorganizing Nature. Show producer Brady Heberlin talks to Jason Moore, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life. In this final segment, we turn to national liberation movements in colonized populations as examples of how to deal with destabilized economies under violent neoliberal regimes. And then we're asked to re-examine so-called frontier technologies, not as highlights of progress, but as weapons of domination. And within the food sovereignty movement or elsewhere, do you see, can you explain some of what you see that sort of approaches or deals with that potential? Well, I think that We've seen a series, not just in food sovereignty, but over the past century, the uh, what an older generation called the agrarian question is now at the heart of world politics once again. And what food justice and food sovereignty movements did, but also in a different register, the states of the global south did, was essentially blow up neoliberal globalization over the past 20 years around agriculture. Of course, we still live in neoliberal capitalism. That's another story. But agriculture has been really the battleground of conflicts between states, of between North and South, and uh, although it might sound quaint, of the world class struggle. It is a, a way of reconceptualizing the food justice is a way of reconceptualizing our relationships with production and reproduction and uh, uh, justice in in all meanings of that term. It also brings to the fore the questions of class in its most fundamental uh, terms, which go very much to the heart of this cheap food model of pushing people off the land and dispossessing them in order to construct more productive agricultures. Only the agricultures aren't more productive now. And the people pushed off the land increasingly are uh, finding no, there's no employment for them because capitalism is also destroying jobs. And say in the context of the long-term Mediterranean drought, which since the mid-1990s has been off the charts, I mean, droughts almost every year over the past uh, 20 five years or so, in contrast to earlier in the 20th century, anyway, you have you see how climate and political regimes and work regimes in agriculture are all getting destabilized and pushing out millions of human beings who are then uh, subjected to the worst that capitalism has had to offer uh, uh, peoples of color and colonized peoples for centuries. So the question of climate politics turns, I think, in some fundamental ways on agrofood questions. And we should look to the history of both what what national liberation movements did that was uh, uh, productive and useful and what they did that was not so not so helpful. And to understand that in the context of a deeply violent world in which opponents to imperial rule have uh, been subjected to the most uh, devastating attacks imaginable. So we can think of the, the history of Vietnam as a great example, a predominantly peasant society, which was absolutely destroyed and poisoned for generations upon generations for the fact that um, Harry uh, that Ho Chi Minh, rather, as he wrote to Harry Truman, wanted to follow the example of the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. So in that context, uh, we have to be uh, prepared for, I think, a very uh, a fraught century ahead 
Uh, but being prepared for it will help us navigate it in new ways. I think, as we were talking about earlier uh, as well, we can look at the Cuban experience, where after the end of cheap Soviet oil, there was a significant uh, uh, a turn both from the state, but also from below. And I call it neither verticalist nor horizontalist, but diagonalist. It had to involve elements of the state and a popular mobilization in, in the widest and best sense of that term to reorganize agriculture on the island so that the agroecological fields are profoundly more climate resistant uh, and hurricane resistant than the conventional crops that are still grown on the island. And oh, by the way, nobody starved. And in fact, life expectancy went up during this period. So that gives us a taste, I think, of the possibilities. And all of that is possible, I want to say, because the Cuban state was able to defend itself against the American empire. And we should not exaggerate that as if we need a reminder, we have the coup in Bolivia. Yeah, I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and one of the things that you're you're starting to mention here, the sort of limitations that capitalism is both creating and then encountering like for and on itself. Uh, and those limitations have to do with the sort of space that we're understanding as nature, both the unpaid, the unpaid reproductive work, and also the sort of earth and the forest and the fields. Can you say a little bit more about what what are those limitations um, and what does it mean for capitalism to both create and then encounter its own limitations? Well, capitalism is an extraordinarily dynamic system and all the more deadly for it being so dynamic. So the source of capitalism's dynamism Probably for most listeners, this was my view for a long time, was uh, 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 we think is technological. It turns out that if we actually look at the history of capitalism going all the way back to 1492, we begin to understand that its technologies are vitally dependent, the really, really significant technologies that have made entire epochs, like the steam engine in the 19th century. They are really frontier technologies. They are all vitally, intimately dependent on cheap natures of multiple kinds. So uh, the invasion of the new world is made possible by a seafaring uh, technology, a vessel called the Caravel, which allowed for those vessels to navigate the Atlantic wind currents very effectively, go send soldiers and priests and merchants and accountants to the new world to uh, uh, pursue cheap labor, profit-making opportunities, and to engage in genocide as a result, and also to return. So a lot of times we think of the great technologies as something like the iPhone. But in fact, if we want to find a great technology, a decisive technology of neoliberal globalization, arguably, it's the container ship. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Brady Heberlin is speaking with Jason Moore about the way frontier technologies, like the steam engine and the cotton gin, and finally the container ship, the miracles of capitalism, offer cheap nature for the price of regimes of violent domination. Now, the container ship, those vast, ugly, floating cities, the container ship, is interesting because it connects with something I was just mentioning. It connects with the Cold War and the Vietnam 
war era. The container ship was essentially uh, forced upon the shipping industry by the Pentagon in order to to uh, supply the permanent war economy of the United States, which was seeking to destroy, to lay waste to a country, Vietnam, that had dared oppose uh, uh, the United States rule over the world in the name of freedom. So we want to look at the great technological innovations, in my view, in the modern world as frontier technologies. The steam engine is another classic example. The steam engine is developed at the pit head of coal mines to drain water. And it could only be developed and refined there because that was the only place where economically it was worthwhile. So the, 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 Steam engine is a machine for extracting and appropriating the unpaid work of ancient life from hundreds of millions and in some cases billions of years ago. Let me say also that the steam engine is related to what, in my view, is the most important machine of the 19th century, which is not the steam engine, which is the cotton gin. And the cotton gin is another example of uh, one of those unrecognized technologies because it was linked to racialized labor and plantation slavery. And it also appropriated the knowledge of generations upon generations of indigenous peoples in developing a strain of cotton called hirsutum, like hirsute, like hairy, hirsutum cotton that could withstand machine milling. And so when we look at the, or what we, what many of us often think of as the origins of planetary crisis with the industrial revolution, we need to understand that it goes to the 16th century to 1492, even earlier. Uh, But we also need to look at how the technologies of genocide, dispossession, and the appropriation of the unpaid knowledge and other forms of work of indigenous and peoples of color all around the world have been absolutely at the center of the capital-ogenic, made by capital, the capital-ogenic drive towards climate crisis. I think this has been this has been very informative, uh, and again, both hopeful and daunting. I think there's there's a lot here um, for us to think about in terms of crafting crafting a transition, you know, out of out of the world we're in into something better. Um, we'll have to wrap up, but before we do, is there anything that you want to add? I think what I would challenge listeners to do is to reflect on how many of our environmentalist concepts of everyday life, and we mentioned the ecological footprint and carbon footprint, but there are others, including our thinking about population. They often conceal and obscure deeper relations of power in the present that are linked to longer histories of global inequality of how this world-class divide that we see today where eight billionaires have more wealth than the bottom 3.6 billion has a very long history of racialized and gendered and colonially enforced domination. And whenever we want to separate and talk about the environment as something separate from our everyday lives, we should pause because that is also a model that comes directly out of a long history of colonialism and imperialism and a long strategy, this cheap nature strategy of turning environments, of turning big end natures into profit-making opportunities, including putting most human beings into the realm of the uncivilized, of the savage, of the lazy, of the not ready for development. They need to learn how to become modern. And so, so all of these questions 
might sound very theoretical or abstract or academic, but what I would I would encourage all of you listening to this is to look at how those separations like culture and nature, humans versus nature, embody longstanding practices of domination, of actually existing domination. And we we can maybe pause for a moment and look at those. Raj Patel and I did a uh, book for a, a popular audience called A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things that speaks to some of that. And you can get it for cheap on Amazon these days. You don't have to buy it new. And it speaks to some of those concerns to just get you to start looking at maybe a conventional environmentalist, and in some cases, maybe even a conventional environmental justice perspective in a new light that shows how the present moment is linked to a deeper history and how it's also a turning point. That's our show. We'll close with Luya, The Glorious Step, a final track off of Cecil Taylor's 1958 album, Looking Ahead. Thanks to Jason Moore for joining Brady Heberlin in the WFHB studios to talk about the end of cheap nature and the resultant end of cheap food, at once daunting and hopeful to those under the thumb of violent capitalist regimes. And thank you for listening. I'm your host, Doug Storm. This program is produced by the Interchange Collective. Today's program was produced by Brady Heberlin. Executive producer is Cade Young. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Thank you.